Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, August 18th, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening, Melissa and I are with our wonderful friends, Nancy and Bruce Bond, in the beautiful mountains of Northeast Georgia. We have taken a slow route back from Charlottesville after taking nearly two days off in Lexington in order to see some friends whom we did not get to see on our recent and much lengthier journey around this half of the country. We will remain here for the solar eclipse on Monday and Yahweh willing we will return home to Florida on Tuesday. Probably just in time to pack for Alexandria maybe. I'm sorry we won't be going that quick. I know that everyone wants to hear about Charlottesville. However, that will have to wait for tomorrow evening when I present several things in addition to my own article on the subject. My own short article on the subject is only about four or five pages. Charlottesville, where the animals have taken over the farm. And that's exactly the truth. There I will have my own account of what I observed last Saturday and also a few pre-recorded segments from a couple of our brethren from the League of the South. I will not talk much about things which I did not actually observe for myself, so there won't be anything about the car crash and all the conspiracy theories based on that. The program is not intended to be a complete editorial of the day, but only my own perspectives describe from my own experience, my own direct experience, I'm sorry. So I will only have minimal commentary on a couple of the other events of the day which I did not witness. On a more somber note, Clifton Emmeheiser, now being 90 years old, suffered a bad fall in his garage last week. Not being able to raise himself, Clifton laid prone for seven hours before he realized that he was able to set the alarm off on his car. Once he did that, he continued to lie there for four more hours in in a small town, this is a shame, before a neighbor finally called the police and help arrived. He is in a hospital, and while initially he was in great pain, His condition has improved, and evidently there is nothing broken. Praise Yahweh for that. Now he is awaiting transfer to physical therapy. In case he cannot return home, we have offered to bring him to Florida, where he can live out his last days in peace in our home. We will keep our readers and listeners informed of further developments. As we have made these presentations of Clifton's special notices to all who deny to Seedline, we have made a preface each week to discuss some of the challenges we face in the conduct of our ministry, or further criticisms of some of the, how do I put this, some of the half-assed ass-clowns, some of the half-assed teachers that Clifton addresses 
in these papers. Here we shall attempt to explain the importance of understanding what we had presented at the beginning of our last segment, part 13 of the series, that all Israel is indeed saved, and that all Adamic men and women have a guarantee of eternal life. Why? Because that's how God created us. Once it is realized, and God cannot fail, once it is realized that this is what the scripture actually teaches, that as Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Only then may we realize the true importance of obedience to the law, love for one another, mercy and forgiveness. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul explained that the children of Jacob are vessels of mercy, while the children of Esau are vessels of destruction. Then, in the letters of Peter and Jude, we learn that the non-Adamic people among us are spots in our feasts of charity, and evil beasts made to be taken and destroyed. As Christ explained in Matthew chapter 25, all of the sheep nations enter into the kingdom of God, and all of the goat nations enter into the same fires of destruction prepared for the devil and his angels. Origin and destiny are inseparably connected. Genesis is a book of origin, and we see two metaphorical trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Christ said in the gospel that a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. The Revelation is a book of struggle and destiny, and in the end there is only one tree standing, the tree of life. We can identify the sheep nations in history, and wherever they have brought wherever they have been, they have brought forth the fruits of the kingdom of God. We can also identify the goat nations, and in the end, they shall be as though they have never been, as it says in Obadiah. They are not written into the book of life, since there is no mention of Yahweh ever having created them in Scripture. And the words of Yahweh and the gospel of Christ are the word of life, as we see in 1 John chapter 1 and in Philippians chapter 2 what would be written into the book of life if not the word of life. The entire Adamic race has the gift of an immortal spirit as an aspect of its creation. It's like building a machine and setting a part into that machine that's the eternal spirit. The spirit which comes from God. When the machine is gone, the spirit is still there. As it says in chapter 2 of the Wisdom of Solomon, For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. Paul explained this same thing in Romans chapter 5. And then Paul spent most of Romans chapter 6 explaining why, because of this very thing, we should all realize the importance of obedience to Yahweh our God and of keeping his law. As Christ had also said, if you love me, keep my commandments. But in the end, as Paul explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, even a man with no good works shall be saved. 
And in chapter 5 of that same epistle, even the spirit of a fornicator shall be saved in the day of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul explained how the resurrection is through the Adamic spirit and described that it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual. The manuscripts upon which the King James Version is based miss or lack the conditional particle in that sentence, changing its entire meaning. The prophet Daniel explains that of those who see the resurrection, some are raised to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. But in saying everlasting contempt, the word of Yahweh nevertheless infers that one is to live forever. This is why it is so important to be firmly grounded in the correct interpretation of Scripture. This is the message I tried to present in my 2015 sermon titled Unity and Divisions. Understanding this, we can then understand why it is so important to keep the law of our God, to love our brethren, and treat one another equitably and with mercy, while separating all of those of the other races who do not share either our origin or our nature. If we do not stand on this solid foundation, we will slide down the slippery slope into that Jewish relativism and work salvation presently taught in the Judaized churches. The next step after that is the desire to baptize Orientals, niggers, and Jews, along with the pharisaical desire to see one's own brethren damned in a lake of fire. That is Roman Catholicism. That is the leaven of the Pharisees. But that is not Christianity. Disobedience to our God leads to our destruction in the flesh. But as Paul had said, our spirit shall be saved in the day of Christ. The difference between those of us who are saved in the sense of eternal salvation and those of us who shall be forever destroyed in the day of his wrath is genetic. It is black and white. And we ourselves are powerless to change it, as that is the way that Yahweh our God has created us. If we, if indeed we are of his creation, and not bastards from the tree which the serpent had represented. And with this, We shall present Clifton Emmerheiser's special notice to all who deny to seed line. Part 14. And Clifton begins. The fact that we are in a war should again be emphasized. This war started in Genesis 3.15 and has continued now for over 7,000 years. This war is between two hate groups. A good hate group and a bad hate group. Some may reply that hate is not Christian. And that is simply not true. On the one side are the literal children of Satan, and on the other side are the true children of Yahweh. Among the fleshly children of Yahweh is the Messiah himself. Therefore, our Redeemer is a member of the good hate group. 
Once more, he is not ashamed to be counted as a member. And Clifton cites Hebrews 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. Christ took upon himself the flesh of Abraham, by which he is not ashamed to call us, to call us, those of us who descended from Abraham through Jacob Israel. He is not ashamed to call us brethren. Clifton says, hate is only bad when it is focused in the wrong direction. However, if our hate would be properly manifested, it will not affect the innocent. Should we direct our hate where it is needed, some of our problems with our common enemy and an enemy could be solved. The one seedliners, or anti-seedliners, vent their hatred towards the flesh. The two seedliners vent their hatred towards the literal, walking, talking, breathing, genetic children of Satan. If our flesh is the problem, we had better get our flesh out of today's satanic banking system. Maybe one should cut off his fleshly fingers to avoid paying the IRS any illegal income tax, which in turn supports the murderous abortion of white children, making one an accessory after the fact. According to the anti-seedliners, those who teach that the flesh is the problem, we should look at those fingers and hate them, rather than identify the real enemy. Such is the mother of all absurdities. And of course this is true. The purpose of the incarnation of Christ was not to save us from our flesh, but to save us from our enemies, as Luke had expressed in the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist where he records his prophecy of the purpose of the Messiah in chapter 1 of his Gospel. The sophistry of those who proclaim that the flesh is our enemy when Yahweh God created man in the flesh and it was good is indeed an incredible absurdity. Clifton continues and he says, While speaking of absurdities, I must relate another situation that happened while researching the subject of two seed line. About five years ago, I was writing several small, small articles on this subject, having become aware that there were several distracting critics speaking in opposition to it. Because of the seriousness of the matter, I put these several small papers together, entitling them Research Papers Proving the two-seed line, Seduction of Eve. At that time, I had purchased a small laptop computer, which I took to work with me and worked on this project in between customers. And if I may know, Clifton actually sent me that laptop in 2009, and having made certain that I had copies of all of the documents it contained, I think that eventually I had to dispose of it, but I'm not really certain I think I disposed of it simply because it was sort of like keeping an old broken down Model Ford in your desk drawer. It just had to go. Clifton continues and says, Because I was continually being interrupted by phone calls and my usual duties, I made several typographical errors. Sometimes, after tending to business for a couple of hours, Clifton was typing about two seed line as he was cutting hair as a barber in his own shop. 
It was difficult to find a place where I had left off and then continue running references, making notes and typing again. No sooner would I get organized than I was interrupted again. It was not unusual for me to be interrupted this way 35 to 45 times in a 10-hour day. Nevertheless, I managed to put these small documents together with some semblance of order. Later, Ted R. Wieland, or Wyland, I should say, obtained a copy of these writings and attempted to make a fool of me. I will now relate one of those instances, and you can evaluate the situation for yourself and determine who is really imprudently ill-advised on this topic. I would have just called Wyland a fool who was really a fool on this topic. Before presenting Clifton's account of this here, let me say that Ted Wyland puts on a front for people which conceals his true nature. In a 2009 email, he had sent our friend Don Brown some rather nasty remarks about Clifton. At that time, I took it upon myself to confront Wyland in an email and offer to take offer him to take up the issues with me. I actually told him to come pick on somebody his own age, and he didn't even answer. Now, whenever I encounter him in social media, I challenge him with simple questions in a gentlemanly manner, and he counters me with vitriol, blocking me whenever he is able. The man is a coward who cannot even have a civil discussion with someone who does not kiss his ass. I think the word I would have for him is really pussy, short for pusillanimous. Now we are about to read Clifton's account of this aspect of his dispute with Wyland, and one of one of Wyland's contentions is that a woman does not have seed. So the seed of the woman in Genesis three fifteen cannot be literal. Of course we may We may not call it seed, but the egg of a woman certainly does represent seed. It contributes 23 chromosomes of each of her offspring, just as the sperm of a man contributes 23 chromosomes. And the egg, having the outer shell and the additional mitochondria, is actually a more complete organism of the common notion of seed than is the sperm itself, even though the seed of either sex is not truly complete until the sperm and egg are joined. Wyland's notion of reproductive seed predates the knowledge which we have from our modern science. However, Yahweh our God knew from the beginning of creation that the woman has seed just as well as the man. In fact, it's repeated in Revelation chapter 13. I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 12 of the woman who stood on the twelve, on, who stood on the sun, or on the moon, I forget, and had the twelve stars around her head. That the dragon went off to make war with the remnant of her seed. So the woman has seed. Wyland just doesn't understand it. He's in denial. Returning to Clifton, he says, on page four of my research papers proving two seed lines, Seduction of Eve, I said the following in part. 
It is absurd, then, to say the woman doesn't have any seed. The woman, then, contributes just as much genetic makeup to the offspring as the man. The question at this point is, if the serpent has seed, or children, who fathered and mothered them? For this, it is critical that we must first go to Genesis 3.13, which says, And Yahweh said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. You will notice that Eve told Yahweh, The serpent beguiled me. Let's see what this word beguiled means in the Strong's Concordance in Hebrew. It is number 5377, Nasha, a primitive root which means to lead astray, to mentally delude, or morally to seduce, beguile, or deceive. Here the word beguile can mean seduce, which in turn means to induce a woman to surrender her chastity, entice to unlawful sexual intercourse. It can also mean to be mentally seduced. And here Clifton inserts a parenthetical remark which says, I claim that one is mentally seduced before the physical act. He then continues and says, We have to be wise enough to know the difference. Now that we have covered the word beguiled, let's take up the word eat. Eat, in the Strong's Concordance, is number 398, and it means, it's the word akal, and it means to eat, it's a primitive root, which means to eat, literally or figuratively, and then Strong's has certain words in which the king, certain terms which the King James used in various contexts to translate the word, and among them are burn up, consume, devour, dine, eat, feed, I guess in the transitive sense, and even lay, in parentheses, with the word meat, to lay at meat, I guess, perhaps. Clifton says, in this particular verse, eat could mean what it says, but is better rendered as lay. Now that we have consulted with the Strong's Concordance as to the meanings of these two words, let's try to determine what Eve really said. The serpent seduced me, and I did lay. And that would be not a technical definition of the word. It would be an understanding of the meaning of the term as Eve had used it in order to make the sentence in English closer to its actual intention to translate the idiom. Clifton says, at this point you might say that we are stretching the Hebrew meaning of the word. And before we continue, we shall only take note that where Paul of Tarsus told the assembly at Corinth that he wanted to present them as a chaste virgin to Christ and expressed the fear that the serpent would beguile or seduce them and therefore prevent him from doing so. There we see the nature of the seduction of Eve, where in Paul's allegory he fully infers that the cost of her seduction was her virginity. Other scriptures reveal this interpretation to be true, and that's all we'll add to that for now. Now to continue with Clifton, 
The part that Wineland quoted from my work was that part I had taken from the Strong's Exhaustive Concordance of the Bible on the Hebrew word 398, akal, plus the sentence before it and two sentences after it. Wyland commented as follows on pages 24 and 25. I guess these are pages of his book, Did She or Didn't She? The Seed Liners, Clifton quoting, Ted Weenieland. The Seed Liners indeed stretch the Hebrew meaning of the word eat. Any linguist would maintain that the Hebrew word akal, translated eat, has been distorted to say something it does not mean. These are Wyland's contentions. The word lay is not part of Strong's definition for the Hebrew word akal. The definition is only that word or group of words that precede the colon. And Wyland's correct about this, and Clifton will note that later. Wyland understands how the Strong's definitions are composed. The word lay is not part of Strong's definition for the Hebrew word akal. The definition is only that word or group of words that precede the colon. It's usually a colon with a dash in Strong's definitions. In the preface to his Hebrew and County Dictionary, Mr. Strong explained that what follows the colon, the colon and the dash really, are renderings by the translators of the King James Bible. And that's true, and Strong does say that. But the problem is that the King James Bible couldn't always translate the word literally. They often, in order for it to make sense, had to translate the word idiomatically because the word was used idiomatically. And if you always translate it literally, it's not going to make any sense. So Wineland is basically being disingenuous here. He's a clown. He's a rodeo clown, specifically. Wyland continues, and he says, Finally, after the punctuation mark, he's quoting strong, are given all the different renderings of the word in the authorized English version, meaning the King James Version, arranged in the alphabetical order of the leading terms. And Wyland's right about that. But you can't interpret every single word literally when you make a translation because you have to account for idioms, allegories, and metaphors. It's that simple. Wyland goes on, Clifton quoting Wyland, and says, Mr. Strong also explains his use of parentheses around the word lay. Parentheses denotes a word or syllable sometimes given in connection with the principal word to which it is annexed. And that's true. And Wyland did good there. But he fails to note that sometimes it means lay because of the context of the greater sentence that's the way it has to be translated in order for it to make sense to us in English this is demonstrated in the following passage from Hosea I, meaning Yahweh, I drew them with cords of a man, with bands of love, and I was to them, meaning the house of Israel, as they to take off the yoke of their jaws, and I laid meat unto them. Quoting Hosea 11.4. In other words, the word lay, and this is still Wyland, in other words, the word lay, as used by James Strong, is not in any sense a definition or replacement for the word eat, and cannot be used in the word in the fashion dictated by the previous sea liner, meaning Clifton.
Concerning the word beguiled in Genesis 3.13, one seed liner, and he's speaking about Nord Davis here, one seed liner speculated, when Eve was cross-examined by Yahweh, she is quoted as admitting, Nakash beguiled me and I did eat. And Nord Davis had a parenthetical remark after beguiled, defining the word as sexually seduced citing Genesis 3.13 and Wyland says for this seed line author Nord Davis to insert the word sexually into Strong's definition borders on dishonesty Strong's concordance does not say sexually seduced and I would agree with Wyland that Nord Davis should not have written his own definition he should have cited Strong's honestly but that still doesn't mean that Eve was not sexually seduced. These were the words of Ted Wyland. Let me state before we continue with Clifton's response that I don't like Nord Davis. He spent a large part of his Star Wars essays attempting to convince us that Arab bastards, and yes, I realize that the phrase Arab bastards is a redundant term, that Arab bastards are a noble race and of the seed of Ishmael, which certainly is not true. Arab bastards are no more Ishmael than Jew bastards are of Isaac, as they are all mixed with the Canaanites and other races. Nor Davis may have been considered too seedline, but I would contend that he certainly did not understand it properly. Now to continue with Clifton's response. Since Nord Davis is dead and cannot defend himself, I am compelled to give an answer for him. And this was written, I think, in 2002. Nord might instruct Mr. Wyland to check out the Jesenius's Hebrew Chaldee lexicon to the Old Testament. For it does say, sexual pleasures for the Hebrew word 398. A call, which literally means eat. Clifton says there are four meanings for the word a call. And number three says this on page 43. To enjoy anything. And this is the idiomatic Hebrew use of the term. To enjoy anything as good fortune, citing Job 21.25. The fruit of good or evil actions. Sexual pleasures, citing Proverbs chapter 30, verse 20, where Jesenius asks, asks us to compare Proverbs chapter 9, verse 17, and chapter 5, verse 20. This meaning, Clifton says, can also be verified from Wilson's Old Testament word studies under the topic Eat on page 141. Also, George M. Lamza in his Idioms in the Bible Explained, points this out concerning Proverbs 9.17 as stolen love and making love to another woman in secret appears pleasant. That's in reference to the passage that says bread eaten in secret. That it really is an allegory for making love to another woman in secret. And that's absolutely true. Clifton says, This is the same word that Eve used when she said, 
in Genesis 3.13, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat, or akal. Now who is really the one bordering on dishonesty? Such spurious, nitpicking arguments about punctuation marks, colons, and parentheses have little or no bearing in this case. And Wyland actually did well to describe the technical aspects of the composition of a Strong's definition. But he did poorly not to admit that the King James translators had to translate the word departing from its literal meaning in various passages because the literal meaning would make no sense so you have to understand the idiom. Clifton says in response to Wyland, well is Jesenius a qualified linguist or not? From this we can conclude one of two things. Either Wyland does not have a Jesenius's lexicon or he has refused to use it. And even though Strong's concordance is useful in many aspects. If you really want to understand Hebrew, you got to have a Jesenius's Hebrew lexicon. I have one on my desk. If you really want to understand Greek, you got to have something like Liddell and Scott. And I have several on my desk. I have two right now, I believe. The condensed version which is based on the large 7th edition of Liddell and Scott's Greek-English lexicon, and I have the large ninth edition of the lexicon, and it's indispensable to have those. If you really want to understand how the Greeks actually use Greek words, and the same thing with Jesenius in Hebrew. Strong's is nice if you're just a casual studier, but if you want to get into it, you got to leave Strong's behind. So in other words, I'm sorry, I'm not done with, with Clifton's quote. He goes on to say, actually, Wyland's explanation of the components of a Strong's definition is correct. So he gives Wyland credit for that. His real fault lies in his disdain for idioms. Just like he dismisses the entire Talmud, which contained many of the tenets of Israel identity, he wants to dismiss all valid idioms in Hebrew. Wyland should also check Strong's at the front of the Hebrew and County Dictionary under signs employed concerning idioms, especially under X when the Strong's definitions have a word preceded by a large letter X. Inasmuch as Wyland frowns on idioms, like those found in Genesis chapter 49, verses 9, 17, 21, 22, and 27, then by his own standards, we should start searching for the lost tribes at the Bronx Zoo. And in other words, if Eve ate literal fruit, then Joseph was a literal bull, and Judah was a literal lion, and Naphtali was a literal hind, and Dan was a literal snake, and the Bible becomes literal hogwash. But we know that Eve was sexually seduced, because that is the comparison that Paul made when he used the example of Eve's seduction as an allegory in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
and we know that Eve was sexually seduced and that Adam had joined her in some sexual act. When feeling guilty for their sins, they covered their loins, hiding the scene of the crime. Clifton himself explains that elsewhere in this series of essays. Finally, we know that Eve was sexually seduced, where the punishment which Yahweh God had pronounced upon her was befitting of such a crime. And there are other scriptures which prove my point, and Clifton's. When we presented part five of this series, we showed from the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is an ancient poem that predates by several centuries the writing of Genesis by Moses, that language quite quite similar to that found in Genesis chapter 3 also describes sexual seduction in that writing. Not that Gilgamesh is scripture, it certainly is not, but it is contemporary writing, contemporary to the time of Abraham, that shows us how the language was used. That language was used by people of a tongue and a culture very closely related to that of Abraham and Moses. Therefore, Ted Weiland remains in purposeful denial. Continuing with Clifton, not only is Mr. Ted Weiland taking these things totally out of context, but he makes some of the most blasphemous statements against the Almighty I have ever witnessed in his book, Eve, Did She or Didn't She, on pages 4 and 5, meaning the things which Clifton is about to discuss, Wyland is taking, Wyland had taken totally out of context. Clifton says, here are some excerpts of his remarks, attempting to put his own outlandish contrived words into the two sea liners' mouths. So Clifton has a list of very short quotes here from Wyland, which I will repeat out of necessity, and then I'll comment on them. This is what Wyland supposedly... These are statements Wyland attributed to two sea liners. Quote, Yahweh himself is a sexual deviant, unquote. Quote, Yahweh had sexual relations with women and fathered children. And again, Yahweh is a liar. And again, the Bible is untrustworthy. And again, Adam was a sodomite. And again, both Adam and Eve were abominations in the eyes of Yahweh. And again, Adam and Eve were permitted by Yahweh to have sexual relations with several partners or people of other races. And again, Yahweh was the originator of and even promoted spouse swapping for both heterosexual and homosexual purposes. And again, Yahshua carried the genes of someone of another race. And again, all Israelites are the seed of Satan. And again, Satan could have, could have, and possibly did have sex with some of the Corinthian Christians, both men and women alike. And again, Yahshua the Christ had and has sexual relations with his followers. Wow. Something reading this wants to make me just bitch slap Ted Wyland. I'm just being honest. Nobody, I don't know any, any legitimate, um, 
teacher of our interpretation of scripture, which here I have to call 2C line, for want of a better term, who says any of these things. Now, we do not have a copy of Weiland's book to see the broader context in which Weiland makes such statements. But Clifton did have his copy on a table in his living room the last time we visited, which was only two months ago. For whatever purpose he took it out, I did not get the chance to learn because we did not have sufficient time to discuss it, even though we stayed with him for five days. We hope to visit him again soon, and maybe I will learn then, Yahweh God be willing. However, it is clear that Wyland is actually using a mockery of God in order to mock our interpretation of Genesis. But Yahweh God will not be mocked, and one day Ted Wyland will certainly regret his mistakes. Continuing with Clifton, he says, Now Wyland makes the claim that we two seedliners imply these things just quoted. For the life of me, I have never read or heard any of the two seedliners make any such suggestions. Therefore, those statements belong to Wyland and Wyland alone and he must bear the responsibility for them. They are his invention, and he owns them by copyright, Clifton citing the Library of Congress copyright number for Ted Wyland's book. Wyland, by making these remarks, implies that I personally, meaning Clifton, am making such assertions, for he quotes me several times in that book, and mostly out of context. I've never read Wyland's book. I really don't want to have to buy a copy of it. I don't know if I want to waste my time on it. <sighs> That's the struggle we always have facing these these fools who criticize us. And we have to pick and choose which ones we want to waste our time on. Clinton then says, Wyland not only quoted me, but also many other prominent two seed liners. He tries to make it appear. He is not pointing his finger and naming names. He does that by placing a number at the end of each quotation, and then lists them at the back of his book. Let's take a look at some of the people, other than myself, who he accuses of such blasphemy on pages 105 through 115. Dan Gaiman, Gladys Demeray, I never heard of her, Bertrand Compare, Jarabee Crawford, Lord Davis, B.J. Dryberg, I never heard of him, Dewey Tucker, imagine that, screwy-dewey, James E. Wise, Scott Stinson, Norman Moody Rogers, I never heard of him, and Arnold Murray. How dare Wyland try to put blasphemous words like those into our mouths? Not only that, but some of these people are dead and cannot defend themselves. And if they said such blasphemous things, why doesn't Wyland quote book, chapter, and verse? He doesn't because he can't. So evidently, Wyland made many such quotes without supplying any citations, which is indeed intellectually dishonest. 
because it is then difficult for people to see the original passage and context in which such things may have been written if indeed they were written if indeed they were written at all this is a sign of someone who is purposely misrepresenting ideas that words are attributed without their sources being properly cited perhaps Ted Wyland was the serpent of Genesis 3 Clifton now continues under the lengthy subtitle in his blindness Wyland stumbles across some valuable information favoring two seed line now I could gather that Clifton had not yet seen this information from the Aramaic Targums that's all I could gather because Clifton is actually quite pleased that Wyland in his book by quoting Scott Stinson supplies this information for him here and Clifton went on to use this information quite often I have um, a slightly different opinion of the value of this information than Clifton does not that I think it's um, it's not valuable but that it's valuable for different reasons and I'll explain that after um, we get into what Clifton says about it here Despite Wyland's dogged, determined pursuit to destroy the two seabine truth, he accidentally happens on some valuable evidence which helps substantiate the fact that Genesis is describing, I'm adding those words in to clarify Clifton's intention, which helps substantiate the fact that Genesis is describing Eve's sexual encounter with Satan though he ridicules it as being Babylonian-influenced. But before I use this second-hand quote from Wyland's Eve, Did She or Didn't She, concerning that informative data, you will need some background regarding it. According to Wyland's source notes, it was written by one Scott Stinson in an article entitled The Serpent and Eve. In that article, Stinson speaks of the contents of various Targumim, Targumim, I'm sorry, Targumim, Targum with I-M added to it. I don't know if it's coming out clearly when I say it. Targumim, that's just Targums. It's the Hebrew plural of the word Targum. For a very brief explanation of what a Targum is, I will quote from the New Concise Bible Dictionary by editor Derek Williams. Targum an Aramaic translation or paraphrase of some part of the Old Testament. Targums exist for all Old Testament books except Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel. And there's a good reason for that. They came into being as the synagogue evolved after the exile when Aramaic began to replace Hebrew as the Israelites' language, the original source says as the Jews language but we know that they should have been referring to Israelites and not Jews 
It therefore became customary for a reading of the Hebrew Scriptures in the synagogue service to be followed by an oral rendering into Aramaic. And this is actually explained in Nehemiah chapter 7, I believe. As time passed, these renderings became more fixed and traditional and were committed to writing probably from the 2nd century B.C. The people that committed the Targums to writing are not necessarily Jews. Our source, Clifton Citation, from the Concise by, new Concise Bible Dictionary goes on to say that even the most literal Targums brought place names up to date, smoothed over textual difficulties and clarified obscure passages. And I would say that the Septuagint did the same thing for, I'm sorry, with good results or with bad results. The Septuagint translation did very much the same thing in many places. Our source says, some of the paraphrased Targums expand the text considerably, substantially altering the text and asserting additional material, which they call midrash in parentheses, which really means commentary. Their value today is that they offer major evidence for the vernacular speech of ancient Palestine and hence for the study of New Testament language and background. They also offer an important witness to the Old Testament text. This is the end of Clifton's citation from the New Concise Bible Dictionary, and now he will add his own elaboration. Clifton says, Among these Targum, these Targums, or Targumim, are the Targum of Ankylos, and the Pseudo-Jonathan Targum. It's called Pseudo-Jonathan because it's esteemed by some that this person, Jonathan, didn't really write it. So it's called Pseudo-Jonathan. Wyland is definitely of the opinion that those Targums were and are quote-unquote Babylonian-influenced. I would rather believe they were not for it wasn't until after they came back from the Babylonian exile that the Targums came into being. They were born out of necessity, not out of some Babylonian religious system. As the books of Daniel, Ezra, and Nehemiah were not entirely written in Hebrew, there wasn't a need for Aramaic Targums for them. When the exiles returned speaking Aramaic, it then became necessary to have a translation from the Hebrew into Aramaic, with the scriptures being read publicly, both in their former Hebrew and in the Aramaic. Any variation in the text would have been censured and reprimanded, for they had very stringent rules on how this was done. Scott Stinson points out that the Targums and the Hebrew as we know it today do not agree on the temptation story. Now, first, this idea of something being something from 2nd century Judea being Babylonian influenced. There is um, what Wyland would have 
absolutely no 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 proof that there were nefarious sources in Babylon that affected interpretation of scripture in the second century BC so he's just throwing that out there the Talmud which we know is Babylonian wasn't really recorded until closer to the 6th century AD so Wyland can only guess that these same Talmudists are the people that created these Targums it's only conjecture on Wyland's part now while I do not agree with or even like everything I see in the Targums we should nevertheless esteem them to be important because they inform us as to what various early interpreters thought about scripture and the same can be said for the earliest portions of the Talmud now I'm not saying that the Talmud is good but that it is useful for that reason and I'm sorry I'm still kind of typing the, the Targums themselves are not scripture and neither is the Talmud of course and we should never confuse them for scripture but rather they show us what early interpreters thought about scripture and we cannot say that the Targums were all the writers of the Targums were all Edomite Jews we can't even really say that about the Talmud even though we do understand that collectively the Talmud comprises the most evil writings ever written next to maybe the Protocols of Zion the Talmud there is no doubt it's evil but the Targums were only preserved in the Talmud the Talmud was only the vehicle by which the Targum survived to us the Talmud also contains the Torah the Talmud contains a lot of biblical writings they're not invalid simply because they were preserved in the Talmud and two seed line scriptural interpretation is not invalid simply because it is also found in the Talmud it's not only found in the Talmud and it's not only found in the Targums the fourth book of Maccabees which Clifton shall cite later in the series is an early Christian work which clearly supports our two seed line interpretation of Genesis 3.15 as does the apocryphal wisdom of Solomon as does works such as the pseudepigraphal to Enoch also called the secrets of Enoch of course the New Testament as I believe I've proven many times clearly supports our two seed line interpretation of scripture but Wyland denies it by claiming that the words do not really mean what they say the same excuse that denominational Christians use to deny to seed line and Christian identity as well continuing with Clifton he now makes another citation from Wyland 
And he says now, quoting Scott Stinson indirectly from Wyland's book. So Clifton is repeating what Wyland quoted from Scott Stinson on 96 of his book, Eve, Did She or Didn't She? And Wyland says that Stinson said, This, meaning the seed line, this interpretation is confirmed in the ancient literature of Israel especially the commentaries on the Hebrew Bible written in Aramaic and commonly known as Targums. These commentaries were written after the House of Judah's return from Babylon. One text gives this interpretation of Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. And Adam knew his wife Eve, who was pregnant by the angel Samael, and she conceived in bare Cain, and he was like the heavenly beings and not like the earthly beings. And she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. And that's from the Targum of Jonathan, or Pseudo-Jonathan, for Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Another ancient commentary gives a similar interpretation of the same passage. And Adam knew his wife Eve, who had desired the angel. And she conceived and bare Cain, and she said, I have acquired a man, the angel of the Lord. And that's from the Palestinian Targum to Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. In another rabbinic work, we find a similar interpretation. And this is actually a quite medieval rabbinic work. And personally, I wouldn't cite it, but that's okay. Stinson did. And she saw that his likeness was not of the earthly beings, but of the heavenly beings. And she prophesied and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord citing the Rabbi Rabbi Eliezer. And he continues and says, One rabbinic source states, Eve bore Cain from the filth of the serpent, and therefore from him were descended all the wicked generations, and from his side is the abode of spirits and demons. A similar explanation for the evil deeds of Cain's lineage is found elsewhere. We read, For two beings had intercourse with Eve, and she conceived from both and bore two children, Eve, I'm sorry, each followed one of the male parents to this side and one to the other, and similarly their characters. On the side of Cain are all the haunts of evil species from which come evil spirits and demons. Now, of course, the Book of Enoch tells us that evil spirits and demons and monsters were born of the unions of the fallen angels with the daughters of men or the daughters of Adam. So we see that these early rabbinical works spoke of the same thing about the sin of Eve. And I really don't care about the early rabbinical works but to me the Targums show us now we can tell from other sources that portions of Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 are corrupt and to me the Targums are valuable not for exactly what they say but the Targums show us that early interpreters felt that something was missing from Genesis 4 1 and they attempted to fill in the blanks on their own. Whether they did it accurately or not, for the purposes of my argument here, is immaterial. We understand, and I've 
demonstrated this. Clifton's demonstrated this from the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. I've demonstrated it from Origins Hexapla. And the, the many various, the four, four contrary Greek readings of the Hebrew of Genesis 4.1 found in Origins Hexapla. So we know that ancient translators, ancient interpreters, because every translation is an interpretation, struggled with Genesis 4.1, and so did these authors of the Aramaic Targums. So they filled in the blanks. We think, it's my personal opinion, and I think I could prove this from Scripture, that while the details of Genesis 4.1 in the Targums are probably not accurate. The spirit is accurate. They understood the sexual seduction of Eve. Clifton now responds to Wyland's claims concerning the material which Scott Stinson had cited. And he says, the real Babylonian-influenced works to which Ted R. Whelan refers is rather the Kabbalistic numerology system by which the priesthood of that day till this attach an occult secret meaning to every letter, word, phrase, and sentence of the Old Testament. And actually, even that is a much later contrivance than the 2nd century B.C. Reading Targums in public is hardly secret. Evidently, Wyland is unaware that the Aramaic Targums affected greatly the Greek Septuagint version of the Old Testament, which is also considered a Targum. And it certainly is, because every translation is, to some degree, an interpretation. Obviously, Wyland is also oblivious to the fact that most of the Old Testament quotations found in the New Testament are taken mostly from the Septuagint. And that is true. Not all of them, but most of them match the Septuagint Greek very closely. By Wyland's own premise, we are going to have to throw out all of these Old Testament quotations in our New Testament because they are from Aramaic Targums, which are supposedly Babylonian-influenced. And I wouldn't go that far. It is true that at least a few New Testament quotations of the Old Testament are closer to versions found in the Aramaic Targums than they are to those found in the Masoretic Text. It is also true that, technically speaking, the Septuagint may be considered a Targum because the word simply indicates what we may call a translation. But the Septuagint is not from the Aramaic Targums, and that's a mistake that I believe Clifton made here in his zeal to show the folly of Ted Wyland. But yes, the Septuagint is a form of Targum. It's only a Greek Targum instead of an Aramaic Targum. And in that sense, all modern versions of the scripture are Targums because they're all translations. Translators trying to read one language and make sense of it and record it in another language. That's a Targum. Clifton continues, and he says, not only that, but when our Savior quoted from the Old Testament, as recorded in Luke chapter 4, he may have read from a Targum. If he had read directly from the Hebrew, the people would have demanded an interpreter. 
And I personally find it more likely that Christ had read from a Greek manuscript similar to our version of the Septuagint. But in any event, it is certain that the Hebrew of the first century was closer to Aramaic than it was to ancient Hebrew. Continuing with Clifton, what Ted R. Wyland, along with several other one sea liners, attempt to do is condemn everything written in the Talmud, the Kabbalah, the Zohar, the Targums, and the other Jewish literature as being 100% false and that we must take a 180-degree stand in opposition to any such information. If we were to take such a position, we would have to condemn as well most of the tenets of the Christian Israel message, for hundreds of references in the Talmud are parallel to identity beliefs. Therefore, I believe that Scott Stinson presented some credible, relevant evidence concerning Genesis 4.1. If his research evidence is correct, then someone has altered the meaning of Genesis 4.1. I will develop, expand, and elaborate more about the subject of these Targums in a separate special notice. And Clifton did. Probably several times. I do not know what Clifton meant to refer to when he meant with his mention of hundreds of references. However, not everything in the Talmud is false. It may be riddled with legalism, mockeries of God and Christ, and the leaven of the Pharisees. But it is not all false. And many books were simply preserved in the Talmud, as I had said earlier. They weren't written by the Talmudists. Not necessarily. While the one seed liners, continuing with Clifton, while the one seed liners, or anti-seed liners, rant and rave about two seed line doctrine being Babylonian influenced, there is a reference on page 8 of the Wycliffe Bible Commentary concerning Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 and 15, for which they cannot make that claim. And in citing the Wycliffe Bible Commentary, Clifton says, 14, a reference to verse 14 of Genesis chapter 3. 14, cursed art thou. The Lord singled out the originator and instigator of the temptation for a special condemnation and degradation. From that moment he must crawl in the dust and even feed on it. He would slither his way along in disgrace, and hatred would be directed against him from all directions. Man would always regard him as a symbol of the degradation of the one who had slandered God, making a reference to Isaiah 65, verse 25. He was to represent not merely the serpent race, but the power of the evil kingdom. Wycliffe did real good here. They just didn't realize that they were describing Jews. As long as life continued, men would hate him and seek to destroy him. 15 a reference to verse 15. I will put enmity. The word heba denotes the blood feud that runs deepest in the heart of man. Citing Numbers chapter 35, Ezekiel 25, Ezekiel 35. Thou shalt bruise, or the word shup, a prophecy of continuing struggle between the descendants of the woman and of the serpent to destroy each other. 
This is Wycliffe, it's not Clifton. The verb shook is rare, citing a passage in Job and a passage in Psalms. It is the same in both clauses. When translated crush, it seems appropriate to the reference concerning the head of the serpent, but not quite so accurate in describing the attack of the serpent on man's heel. It is also rendered lie in wait for, aim at, or in the Septuagint, watch for, and that is true. The Vulgate renders it contere, Latin, contaret, probably. I'm using a French pronunciation, I'm sorry. Contaret, or bruise, in the first instance, and insidiaberis, or lie in wait, similar to the Septuagint's watch. In the other clause, the second, the second clause concerning the, her, the serpent and the heel of the seed of the woman. Thus we have in this famous passage, called the Protevangelium, or First Gospel, the announcement of a prolonged struggle, perpetual antagonism, wounds on both sides, and eventual victory for the seed of the woman. God's promise that the head of the serpent was to be crushed pointed forward to the coming of Messiah and guaranteed victory. I would instead say that it points forward to the second coming of Messiah and the deposit of all non-Adamic people in the lake of fire. That would be my interpretation. Clifton continues with one more sentence from his citation. The Wycliffe commentary ends by saying, This assurance fell upon the ears of God's earliest creatures as a blessed hope of redemption. So it's the Protevangelion, or First Gospel. This passage, Clifton says, spells it all out, except naming the counterfeit Judahites, or Jews, as the serpent race, and Eve's seed as the Anglo-Saxon descendants of the Israelites. Truly, the one seed line position is built on error. And therefore, to maintain it, it becomes an endless necessity to build on top of it with one error after another. Now, for my part, I would have a wider view of the seed of the serpent than Clifton had in 2002. To me, not only are your descendants seed, but your brethren as well. And if the serpent was the representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then the entire tree is the seed of the serpent. And that's my opinion. While the Wycliffe Bible commentators said concerning the serpent that man would always regard him as a symbol of the degradation of the one who had slandered God, we would rather think that this serpent, a man, or more specifically a fallen angel, according to Revelation chapter 12, was called after the term serpent for that symbolic reason. Now Clifton continues by responding to the Wycliffe commentary under the subtitle The Agenda of the Serpent's Seed. And he says that according to some one seed liners, or anti-seed liners, which really is the better term, 
The only seed of Genesis 3.15 is exclusively and only Jesus Christ. For the rest of them who assign the seeds of that verse to the so-called seeds of the spirit and the seeds of the flesh, like Wyland, Stephen Jones, James Brueggemann, and company, they deny the Messiah himself. Not only are their children or seed of the serpent of this first gospel, but his seed has an agenda. Clifton says, and he's not referring to William Fink, it's a reference to somebody else who I really knew at one time the name of this person, but I don't remember now, 15 years later. Clifton says, I have a prisoner on my mailing list who is taking a college course in business administration, and he sent me a copy of a page from one of his textbooks on that subject called Your Future in Business Begins Now, Chapter 1, page 11. As you read it, you will begin to see just how serious this war of two sea lines is, which the one sea liners, or anti-sea liners, challenge. I don't think they really challenge it. (coughs) I think that clowns, rodeo clowns like Ted Wyland, circus clowns like Stephen Jones and and James Brueggemann, and, and even although to a lesser degree, even men like Pete Peters, Dave Barley is another one, they don't challenge this war. They deny that it's happening. That's what they're doing. They think everything is spiritual. There's good people and there's bad people and we're all people. And they deny that the war is going on. They think that the struggle with the flesh, which is another matter entirely, is the war that we're fighting but Paul said that our warfare is not of the flesh. Not at all. Genesis chapter 3 has nothing to do with our struggle with the flesh. Our overcoming our own sin might have something to do with the nature of the panderers that entice us into sin, but it has nothing to do with the war against this serpent seed, except that most of the panderers happen to be of the serpent seed. The Jew and the other races pandering to immorality continuously. That's their life. That's how they live it. Clifton, quoting this book, which is, this is, um, this is 2002. This book was probably written in 1997. We'll see the evidence for that in the second paragraph of the quote. What we see, everything that we, we've been um, seeing Jews openly profess to this very day. The United States is undergoing a new demographic transition. And of course, these things were stated long before 1997 as well. It is becoming a society composed of people from multiple cultures. Over the next few decades, the United States will shift further away from a society dominated by whites and rooted in Western culture toward a society characterized by three large racial and ethnic minorities, African Americans, U.S. Hispanics, and Asian Americans. I don't know why they aren't U.S. Asians and U.S. Africans, but... That's the terms the book chose to use. All three minorities will grow in size and in share of the population, while the white majority declines as a percentage of the total. 
Native Americans and people with roots in Australia, the Middle East, the former Soviet Union, I think that means Jews, and other parts of the world will further enrich the fabric of the U.S. society. Now, be mindful that this is a book for a business course, so all this is good because you have more people to buy your fuller brushes and your shoes and whatever else you're selling. The labor force of the past was dominated by white men who are now retiring. They will be replaced by a multicultural labor force who are beginning their careers in entry-level jobs in 2000. The proportion of workers who are non-Hispanic whites will, de- will decrease from 77% in 1997, that's the probable publication of the year of this book, to 74% in 2005. A diverse is a healthy workforce. So we see this lies 20 years old. This lies really 7,000 years old, right? Diversity leads to new ideas, new ways of doing things, and greater income equality among ethnic groups. In other words, we all make minimum wage. Multiculturalism exists when all major ethnic groups in an area, such as a city, county, or census tract, are roughly equally represented. Because of the current demographic transition, the trend in the United States is towards greater multiculturalism although the degree varies in different parts of the country. It really varies in Detroit and Cleveland. Four of New York City's five boroughs are among the ten most ethnically diverse counties in the country. People of various ancestries, they were not counting Staten Island, people of various ancestries have long been attracted to San Francisco County, and not surprisingly, it is the most diverse in the nation. The proportions of major ethnic groups are closer to being equal there than anywhere else. The least multicultural region is a broad swath stretching from northern New England through the Midwest and into Montana. At one time that was called the Great White North. Now it's the Great Yellow North because the dogs have lifted their legs all over it. These counties have few people other than whites. The counties with the very lowest level of diversity are found in the agricultural heartland in Nebraska and Iowa. Because niggers don't farm. Of course, this book is so odious to us that uh, it, it's incredible, but anti-seedliners simply do not understand the truly racial message of our scriptures, and therefore they help to enable our enemies in the execution of this war upon our race. The next time you see a white girl with her lips wrapped around a nigger, thank Ted Wyland because he just can't preach the truth. And people that are Christian identity should know better. In this sense, it doesn't matter how much Ted Wyland writes about God's covenant people. He is helping the devil to destroy them by refusing to provide them with a proper education in regard to the works of the devil. It's that simple. Come all the way. If you're lukewarm, you're getting spit out of the mouth of God. Clifton concludes, and he says, Does this agenda meaning the agenda in that business marketing book, does this agenda sound like a mere flesh problem, as the anti-seedliners claim? How foolish an assumption. By denying two seedline doctrine, 
as the one seed liners or anti-seed liners do, they actually help to promote that agenda of the seed or children of the serpent. Although the enemy is crying now for equality, in the end he will demand total annihilation of the whites. Once he has brought about admixture to the whites, to the white race, in essence he has, in effect, annihilated them. Therefore, there is only one solution to the problem, and that is the total separation of the whites from the other races. And unless that is brought about in the near future, we do not have a destiny. Possibly, with an understanding of two-seed-line doctrine, we might forestall, completely halt, and reverse that forthcoming disaster to our race. If we ever come out of this dilemma, it will be no thanks to those who are fighting the two-seed-line message. And in 2002, Clifton's rhetoric was a little softer than it may be today. And I would only add that total separation from the non-white races is only possible when all of the goat nations are gathered and burned in a lake of fire, which is prepared for the devil and his angels. That is their fate. And we all need to understand the implications before we can ever properly arise and thresh before we can ever prevail. Tomorrow night, Charlottesville, the animals have taken over the farm. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. This is for Ted Wheeland. See you.